a bonus interview episode of Dogs Are Smarter Than People, the usually quirky podcast that gives writing tips and life tips. I'm Carrie Jones, and with me today is Fiona Cameron McIntosh, and she's a poet from Toronto and manages Elderwood Coaching, and allegedly, she does not believe in team language for wild things, which is possibly the best thing I've ever heard. Fiona, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I want to ask you about your um, sentiment that you don't believe in tame language for wild things. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. So, so there, there's a story because there's always a story. <laughs> okay. Um, so there, it, it's actually um, the 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 phrase "no more tame uh, language for wild things" um. is a phrase that um, a mythologist, Dr. Martin Shaw, who lives in Dartmoor in England, um, uses. And I went to a storytelling retreat that he held in Dartmoor a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, he does them regularly, but I was there a few years ago <laughs> and um, he was talking about how the times that we now live in require require of us a different kind of language mm. um, and a different way of engaging with the world. Um, and, and in a way, it's actually um, I don't know if you know of the um, uh, I think he's a biologist, but he's also a writer. Uh, what is his name? Robert McFarlane, I think. Uh-huh. And um, he writes a lot about, um, he put out a book called uh, Lost Words with, um, I think it was the artist Jackie Morris, uh-huh. where um, when the Oxford uh, Dictionary had removed a whole bunch of nature-related words because kids don't know what they are and don't use them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were words like wren and otter and uh, and kingfisher i think was in there as well and so he he as a naturalist was horrified um, right. obviously by the removal of those things and so um so it's kind of part of this movement where we're saying yeah. like we need to be mindful of our language and make sure that it stays wild right um, uh, that's how I've interpreted it anyway, or that's how I've internalized it. Because the more rigid our language becomes and the more constrained our language gets, uh, the less possibilities we have. That's so true. And it's so interesting how, how culture does, and you know, if you think about different languages and the sentence construction and what their focus is on and how yeah. different cultures don't have words for emotional states or being even um, that other cultures have and how that language shapes us as we shape it. You know, it's, it's so dramatic and cool um, it is. and important and powerful to hold on and take control of that language, you know, to be cognizant yeah. of it. And ah, I'm so glad that workshop must have been amazing. It was, and it was actually, um, it, it wasn't, it was a workshop uh, called um, The Wandering Court, um, and he he was storytelling over three days, so it was the story of Tristan and Isolde. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. And it was just this amazing. So he, he's, um, aside from being a mythologist, he's a bit of a bard. So he, he's a really powerful storyteller. And so the story was kind of told, it was basically a story performance Mm -hmm. and, um, the workshop pieces of it. So he would storytell part of the story for like an hour, an hour and a half. And right. then there would, and then he would break and there would be kind of reflection exercises and poetry writing and uh, coming out of that chunk of the story. Yeah. Uh, but it was just phenomenal. Like just sitting there listening to a storyteller tell a story for three days. It must have and been it, amazing. Yeah, it was. And being in Dartmoor where the weather is just so, it's such an alive, the moors there are just so alive. Yeah. Um, and, and the weather is so variable that that actually kind of formed part of the container, kind of the space we were in. Oh, like wow. the weather was part of it as well. Wow. That's, I'm sorry. I'm sort of like just lost and cause I'm all enraptured of, you know, of the scene that you're creating. And I'm so glad you got to go there. That's yeah. Oh, it was amazing. Especially for your poet heart, you know? Like, yes. What a great experience for you. Oh, I yeah. bet you'll have that forever. Um, yeah. I'm thinking a little bit about, about poetry um, and how so many people are, no offense, afraid of poetry. Do you think that's changing? Do you think it's a truth? Do you think it's variable? Uh, no, I, I, I do think it's true um i actually have a friend uh who's an author here in ontario who was chatting to me about that because she's always kind of never really been able to connect to poetry um and she wants to right um and and i think in part that's because of how we teach it yeah because <laughs> uh, we, we're just like poetry and story are like when you read a novel, if you, you read it as a reader, not as a writer. Right. Right. Well, I mean, sometimes you're reading it as a writer because you're trying to figure out like, how was that story told? But for the most part, as a reader, you're engaging with it as at a story level. Right. And the way that we teach poetry in school is the complete opposite where you're not actually reading it as a reader. You, you're reading it as a critic and as a, uh, as a sort of understanding the craft. Yeah. So you never really get to experience the art of poetry. You just kind of get thrown into the craft part of it in the deep end. Mm-hmm. And you're doing things like iambic pentameter and scansion and all those words that give everybody, um, uh, you know, my shoulders actually just went up and I'm a poet. So, <laughs> uh, I, I'm like cringing as I'm saying them. And it's not that they're not important, but for the vast majority of people, you don't need to understand scansion in order to be able to enter a poem and to experience the poem. Right. So I think I think the way in which it's taught creates barriers for people mm. because uh, that way of reading is not really natural. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I like to start people off with um, – uh, with children's poetry because <laughs> because it carries um, children's poetry can really be very profound, mm-hmm. but it carries less. Um, uh, I was going to say weighty baggage, right? Like, so if you're reading Shel Silverstein or if you're reading um, Lewis Carroll, 
you, you can just sit with that poem and enjoy it at kind of the nonsense level. Right. And you can enjoy its musicality with, without having to worry about what it means because it really, that's not its purpose. Its purpose is just to give children an enjoyable experience of language and of music and of rhythm and um, of rhyme. Right. Um, you know, whereas if you, if you throw somebody into Yeats, who I love, right. uh, or um, Billy Collins, yeah. um, that's a lot more intimidating. Because all of a sudden, you know, oh, I'm reading a poet laureate. I, I, and, and that's enough to make you feel stupid. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes a good entry point is actually um, children's uh, children's verse. That's really, really interesting. You must be a great teacher of it. What is it that, like, made – right, since so for many of us um, – you know, that, that initial teaching of poetry makes us push it away. And some of us are scared about it. And some of us, you know, have um, preconceived notions about it sometimes. Um, what was it that didn't push you away? You know, you're a poet. How did you go out and embrace that genre? Was there like a pivotal moment? Was it a growing learning curve so it was probably a combination of my of things so my mom and my aunties uh my mom especially is a voracious reader and uh got that from my grandmother and um poetry is just one of the things my mom's always loved uh and my aunties as well and so poetry was always in the house uh-huh. Um, and then I think the other weird part, uh, although I'm, I'm not, um, attached to, uh, a church anymore or religion per se, I grew up in a very, um, religious household. And so, um, part of the church service was always, um, psalm singing. Uh-huh. And so it was always the whole congregation singing. And so, um, not necessarily at a choir level, but yeah. <laughs> but but that communal singing, right? That communal coming together to um, to uh, to express through po- po- what is essentially poetry, right. um, uh, and and I loved those were the parts of the service I loved um, was the singing, yeah. And then I started writing poetry when I was ten, um, so oh. um, you know my teenage poetry is very. Um, dramatic and teenager but um (laughs) but i but i've been writing poetry since i was 10 so that that's always been my form of uh expression yeah yeah so um now i've forgotten what your question was (laughs) (laughs) no you don't need to remember it it's cool and and you answered it anyways i was wondering how you know you 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 grew into becoming a poet oh, yes. so many people are yeah so so we so so um just speaking a little bit more directly to that so we we grew up with a lot of poetry and um we also in school had to m- m- memorize poetry and so we were wow. lucky that the teacher um that we had um was um um so we weren't we weren't memorizing yates we were memorizing things that were fun to say out loud Right. Um, because they had that kind of rhythm and musicality to them right. and rhyme. And so, um, uh, 
yeah, so I think that, that those were mostly my entry points, probably my mom and my aunties and uh, the teach the teacher that I had in, in primary. So you were really like, um, in big ways and little ways, you were surrounded by the cadence and the musicality of language. And yes. Yeah. And that's, that's so interesting and very, very, very cool. Yeah. Um, I I was not, but I do remember how horrible poetry, um, a haiku changed my life, honestly. Oh, yeah. Um, in first grade. Oh, no, second grade, because I wrote one. Um, and yeah. I been because I have a sloshy S and a goofy voice, I was totally bullied um, through my childhood. And I was, I grew up, yeah. um, my parents had sent me to Canada a lot. I was the last child and they were getting divorced and I grew up in Oxford Mills when I was little, little, um, with oh, my parents. Okay. Yep. And, um, that's in Ontario for anyone listening who's not from Canada. And, um, and everyone's like, that's why you're so self-deprecating and you apologize all the time. And I'm like, that's a stereotype. Um, but, um, I had, when I went to school, I had this really goofy voice and I sloshed my asses and I was like really timid and, um, I didn't talk all of first grade, which is when you're in six or seven years old. And in second grade, um, we were given an assignment of writing a haiku. And all we were supposed to do was um, write, you know, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. She wanted us to make it one sentence. And she wanted it to not be about fighting or Barbies because it was back then. Yeah. And um, the first one done got to go out to recess. And I did it. Um, and I slammed it on her on her table, and I remember like being like, "Yeah, I'm done." Um, and going out to recess early, and that was the best thing ever. And when I came back, um, she like made me come to her desk, and I was like, "Oh no, did I run through the halls instead of just fast walking? What kind of trouble am I in?" And she was like, yeah. um, "My teacher, um, I'll never remember this because a poem changed my life, and I'm so sorry I'm talking about me, but it changed my life." So to you can hear a poet um and she said uh carrie this poem is perfect we had no idea you were smart and <laughs> and like after that i started you know suddenly i was in the smart kids group so then i had yeah. to, on saturdays you know go to a special thing that's my dog by the way um normally we would be in another space but we are recording this in the time of coronavirus um COVID-19 and that is why you are hearing the dog right now and I apologize to you and everybody listening but yeah poetry changed my life and it was a big deal so I'm always um excited about how people get into the land of poetry and how you know it affects and impacts them um yeah and yeah. I, I think, go ahead. Oh no, you go. I was gonna say I think um, the the given that I mentioned Billy Collins earlier, what I was gonna oh, say yeah. is I think it's it, he has a poem called I think it's called Introduction to Poetry. Oh, and um, it's because he he taught poetry for a long time in uh, I think it was in New York, but anyway, um, and. Um, the poem is about his experience as a poetry teacher oh. and how he w would be trying to engage his students in engaging with poetry. And it's really funny. I mean, it's really funny to me, but I, but I think it's also like legitimately really funny. <laughs> um, and what he talks about there is, you know, he's trying to get his students to explore 
um, the poetry from an experiential perspective. So um, he has all of these metaphors he uses for that. And like, you know, what happens if you drop a mouse into the maze that the poet, the poem is and watch it find its way out of the poem. Um, uh, or you, you know, you water ski across its surface and you wave to the poet on the shore as you go by. Um, so he has all these metaphors for kind of, um, exploring the poem. And then at the end, he kind of says, but his students just want to tie the poem to a chair and beat it with a hose to torture what it means out of it. And, And, you know, I think people sometimes have that tendency with poetry, which is they feel like they have to understand what it means in a very intellectual sense yeah um and and you don't right i mean you can but that that's not that's not that's not actually for me at least that's not the richest way of experiencing poetry because speaking it out loud so that you hear the musicality of the piece and you're engaging with it in a in a sense-based way yeah um i think is a better way of of um, living with poetry. Yeah, and they're meant to be lived with, and they're meant, to, you know, to be yeah. in out loud and to hear the sound of the syllables and the words drifting across the page and or yeah. stamping and stampeding across the page. Like, all of that is, is so important, you know? It's such a beautiful thing. Do you remember the first poem that rocked your world? I know that you always had poems all around you, but... Um, so what if the, so so one of the poems, uh, was Traveler by Walter de la Mer. And it's, it's got, it's got that kind of, it's, um, it's not the type of poetry I write anymore because it's, uh, it's rhyming verse. Uh Uh, I think it's rhyming couplets, uh, to get technical. Um, but it just had this beautiful rhythm to it that made it really easy to memorize and it had a really intriguing story so um uh i don't have because i've got you up on my ipad i can't uh, (laughs) scroll to it but that that definitely was one of the poems that um um was a huge kind of uh influence and then basically anything yates wrote I, I fell in love with Yeats really young, very weirdly. And, um, well, not weirdly, because he, he inhabited a very kind of mystic, mystic Celtic world, and um, yeah. that called to me. Um, uh, so Yeats, um, and then um, the other poet whose name is going to slip my mind, and it's going to be terrible. Oh, no. Uh, I'm sorry. No, it's going to come back to me. But again, it was a very rhythmical poem. So, and I'm going to, because this is coming from very young memory here. Right. Uh, go down to the sea today, the lovely sea in the sky. And his name is John. Anyway, it's basically a poem. I'll, I'll maybe email it to you and then you can do oh, some magic and add it onto the podcast somehow. Um, uh, but it, it's basically a poem reflecting back on his time at sea. Uh-huh. Was and it just, just is it the is it sea fever? Do you oh, know that? Maybe. It's um I think it goes, I must go down to the yes, seas again, the, the lonely sea the in the sky. Yeah, that's a beautiful I I hope I didn't butcher that, but that's no, a beautiful, didn't. beautiful poem. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so 
when you speak that poem out loud, you actually do feel the rhythm of the waves and of the wind because yeah. the, the structure of the poem itself actually reflects that um, that movement. Um, and so that, that, that was one of the poems that I uh, really loved when I was little as well. Yeah, um, yeah so th- those two for sure uh, stand out. Do you think that, um, I know that you do coaching and I'm assuming you do some other things that aren't poetry, but do you think that poetry informs all those other aspects of your life? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, what you'll actually find is a lot of coaches, um, cause I'm actually in a coaching, uh, training session right now with, um, on, uh, developmental, uh, adult developmental theory. And um, the prof who's running it opens every session with a poem, oh. um, and and it's it, it's a way for creating sort of a meditative space. Um, and so the poems that she chooses are related to whatever she's teaching that day, um, from a theme perspective. But um, it's a different way of encountering um, mm-hmm. the topics. Um, so you'll fi- you'll actually find a lot of coaches use poetry. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's Mary Oliver, uh, or there are sort of some standard go-tos that people use a lot. So Mary Oliver's one, William Stafford, um, uh, Wendell Berry, who's, uh, uh, kind of agrarian based poet in the U S right. Um, and so, yeah, it, it definitely, um, um, because the way that coaching works, at least from my perspective, is it's about the stories that we tell ourselves. Right. And then about finding a way underneath the story to what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that we do that is, is, is through the tools that authors and poets use, right? Which is metaphor and, um, and, uh, and story. Um, right. So, um, uh, and yeah, so it's definitely, definitely part of my practice. <laughs> yeah. And repetition. Cause we, you know, repeat these scripts in our heads about who we are and what yeah. we cannot do. And as we repeat them more and more, they become internalized, even if they are not truth. So, but we make them truth via story and then, you know. Yeah. And then if people can sort of gain this space to be able to see it as a story. Yes it gives them room then to be able to say, um, you know, okay, I believe this story, but how could I be wrong? Right. Uh, and what possibilities does, um, does that open up for me? If I am wrong about this story that I'm telling. Right. Um, so, and I totally have to give credit to the, um, professor, uh, in my course for everything I just said. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Think of a Wendell Berry. Do you know the Wendell Berry poem, um, Do Not Be Ashamed? Um, and the very beginning of that poem goes, um, it reminds me of that enlightenment when you dismantle and understand your stories because it starts, you will be walking some night in the comfortable dark of your yard and suddenly a green, it's a great, a great light will shine around you and behind you and will be a wall you never saw before. Yeah. And that's powerful. 
and that I, I probably butchered that too. Um, but like, um, if you think about it, how, how that really does intersect with what you were just talking about, which is such a big entry point and way to encounter life, you know, when you were saying about how it's a different way of encountering life poetry. Yeah. Is that? And, I, and I would challenge, challenge us both because I think I did it earlier oh. uh, on the butcher on the butchering piece, right? Because, <laughs> um, unless you're standing up giving a formal recital, yeah. Um, really, when when we're saying here's this thing in this poem that really resonated with me, yeah. Um, it like that experience is an experience of co-creation, right? And so there's the poem in the form that the poet wrote it. Right. And then there's how you've experienced it and integrated and, and internalized it. So what we're doing is, is using our recall to kind of say this emotionally is what spoke to me or yes. part of what spoke to me in the poem. So I don't know that we, like when we're talking about poetry, um, that we, as I said, unless you're standing up doing a performance where people are kind of, you know, paying to hear the poem. Right. Um, verbatim or whatever that that really then it's it's again that's one of those barriers that we put up yeah that's um, so smart oh I learned something you're amazing yeah. you're amazing thank you oh it's been so enjoyable chatting with you well before we go now that you've been like given me like this big epiphany enlightenment moment that I'm just <laughs> sitting going oh wow I need to just you know stare out the window and think about what that meant and um because that just like rocked my world um so thank you is there anything else you want to give a shout out to or something going on that you want to promote or tell us about in your life before we say goodbye because you're brilliant and amazing and i want to make sure you have a a second to say whatever it is that you need um so i i i'm in the process so it's not yet uh launched yeah. Um, but I'm in the process of doing a couple of things. Mm -hmm. um, so one is I'm going to be launching a course in the near future on intuition and, and sort of demystifying what intuition is and how you actually build it. Ooh, that's um, because it's a little bit like learning how to walk. You don't know that you're doing it, but you're doing it. Um, and so um, that course is going to look at how um, I think Neil Gaiman talks of it in writing as everything that you experience in your life becomes part of a compost heap um, yes. that you that your imagination draws from. And it's not necessarily a conscious process. And so I view intuition very much the same way because it's drawing essentially from the same source. So everything that you read, everything that you write, everything that you experience is part of kind of this imaginative compost and intuitive compost that you draw from. So... Um, I'm going to be launching a course that helps people kind of demystify intuition mm -hmm. and uh, become comfortable with building um, building those muscles. So that'll launch. Um, I'm hoping to have it launched in April. Um, and then um, the other thing that I would say is um, kind of coronavirus related. Um, <laughs> so... Um, uh, and I'm definitely not the first to think of this, and I'm sure not. I won't be the last. But it's creating space using Zoom to kind of do um, uh, check-ins for people uh, who can join uh, to kind of uh, 
feel less socially isolated. And yeah. so because I come from a tradition, a Scottish tradition, um, my approach to it is going to kind of be digital Kaylee. And um, uh, so essentially sort of people can come and share story and share song and share poetry and uh, at the same time having kind of community space to uh, talk about uh, how isolation is working. Oh, that's beautiful. That's going to be amazing. amazing. So um, I will have details on that, hopefully up on my website um, uh, within the next couple of, uh, within the next week. Yay. And you can see your website, but I'll, we'll also put a um, link in the um podcast episode notes but do you want to say it right now uh so the, for your website the, the website, website is uh the elderwoods and that's all obviously one word the elderwoods.com awesome thank you so much i am so impressed by you and i am really 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 grateful for for you giving me that epiphany about my apologies for poetry that's that was kind of it really Myself did. too. I was in this space with you. <laughs> well, I'm glad I got to share this space with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carrie. It was a joy talking to you. Oh, you too. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the special interview bonus edition of Dogs Are Smarter Than People with me, Carrie Jones, writer and random human in Maine. Our regular podcasts come out on every Tuesday. Our podcast can be found everywhere that podcasts can be found, but our notes for a podcast can be found on carriejonesbooks.blog. So if you want to hear more about the cool people that I just talked to, or, you know, click through on their links and show them some love, you can go there and find all the episode notes. Again, that's Carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E. Jones, J-O-N-E-S, books, dot block. Thanks for listening. Um, I hope that our little moment in your life helped make your life a little bit better. <laughs>